and we're live and welcome to the Property Funder podcast. I'm here with Hugh. Now, before we start talking to Hugh, just a reminder, if you are joining us for the first time, welcome. If you're coming back, but you're not subscribed, please remember to follow us or subscribe uh, wherever you get, you get your podcasts. Uh, please also share with your network if you enjoy what you're hearing. Um, Hugh, uh, Good morning. Let's, uh, good morning. Uh, do you want to give everyone your full name? Uh, tell everyone about the businesses that you're involved in, and uh, and and also where are you today? Where are you talking to us from? Yeah, good morning. So my name's Hugh A. Jones. I'm the founder of Ennis Global, um, which is an international uh, sort of debt finance brokerage. Uh, so we arrange uh, mortgages on UK and international property. We arrange um, finance debt against uh, what we call securities-backed lending, so public securities, um, some, sometimes more challenging, so sort of smaller exchanges or, or shares with lower trading volumes or high levels of private ownership. And also we arrange corporate finance, so trading business, so typically in that space sort of two to 20 million for kind of trading businesses, which we, historically we've seen as a, as a bit of a blind spot for, for a number of lenders. Uh, and I'm also the founder of 10 Capital, um, which is a Guernsey-based bridging finance company. Um, and we, our USP there is we lend against international properties. So obviously not just in the UK, but Channel Islands, France, Monaco, um, you know, across the world, you know, and, uh, and we'll lend in the region around 200 million of sort of cash this year. So um, yeah, pretty decent size. We're about three years old in that side. And then I'm speaking today from Monaco, uh, which has been my home for the last three and a half years. Um, yeah, very happy here. Obviously, just before we started recording, you're bemoaning it being a bit wet and, and windy. It's sort of uh, can report it's sort of 22, 23 degrees here and, and rather pleasant this morning. So um, that probably makes me sound quite smug, um, which it wasn't meant to. But <laughs> probably it's maybe just one of the reasons why I moved down here a few years ago as much as anything, just for better weather. Well, uh, th thanks for sharing that initial uh, introduction, Hugh. Um, for those of you that are, aren't aware of, of, of Hugh's experience and, and I suppose it's the, his place in the specialist finance industry, uh, if, if you're not in the specialist finance industry, you'd be forgiven for doing so. But if you're in the specialist finance industry, it's highly unlikely you won't have heard uh, of Hugh before. Um, so in, in many ways, you didn't need a huge amount of introduction. Um, so, but there's there's a, a nice plug and a big Hugh up there. Um, Hugh, I think one of the things that our, our listeners are, are really enjoying is, is hearing stories as to how to, you know, kind of how how they got where they got to on their journeys. Yeah. Um, I had a I had a quick look on LinkedIn just to to look at your background before we uh, before we got started, and um, so your 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 journey was your journey into into where we are now. It, it took a, you know, it, it took a quite a familiar path, actually, now as mm -hmm. I'm seeing some of the, uh, as, as now we've spoken to quite a few uh, people in your, in in the broking space who've, who've been quite successful. Um, so you let, you went, you went to university 2000, 2000 to 2003, you were in, uh, you were in Hull uh, doing a, doing a degree there. Uh, and then you ended up at Alexander Hall. Um, right, yeah. So how how did how did you come about getting into that uh, getting into Alexander Hall because it's your, your degree wasn't specifically uh, sort of you know wasn't a mortgage broking was an automatic route into mortgage broking should we say 
No, correct. So in my university holidays, um, I worked for um, probably what I now know to be one of the most corrupt people um, I've ever met, although at the time I didn't really quite understand what he was up to. He was a, a mortgage broker in the adverse credit space in the good old days of sort of non-regulation and stuff. So um, yeah, maybe some of his practices weren't wonderful, but it kind of opened my brain to mortgage broking being a thing, you know, being a job that was available. Um, straight out of uni, um, I dropped actually into uh, the industry which my father had been in, which was advertising. I had very good fun, it was nice, I did nine months, but it, it kind of wasn't for me. Um, certainly anyone that I saw that was rich or successful in inverted commas had some kind of link to property. So I was kind of quite keen to find a link in there. I had an interview at a quantity surveyor. I found it quite dull. I realised very quickly that wasn't for me. Um, I sort of thought maybe, you know, state agency, but again, I kind of, I wanted something which had at least some kind of um, link to finance, which was an area that I was, I was sort of pretty interested in, I guess. Um, and so I, yeah, I sort of went back to that kind of that mortgage broker and said, well, what do you think? And he said, look, I've got a job for you. you know, I'm a one man band. But he said look, these are the biggest brokers in the industry. So at the time it was um, Chase Devere, Cobalt Capital, Savills, um, in the iteration it was before it is now, Alexander Hall. And I, I can't remember. So I just wrote them all letters um, and the Alexander Hall sort of um, recruitment machine is pretty aggressive and literally within a week I sort of found myself sat on sat on the floor in Chiswick Park and yeah had a had a wonderful three or four years really 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 fun learned a lot learned how learned how to use a telephone basically um versus you know kind of what you think selling is um and Alexander Hall at the time were they were they part of Foxton's then or, or did that come later yeah no it was so it was yeah, the John Hunt years, which yeah is kind of that 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 kind of meteoric rise. Um, the tie, the link was less. Um, uh, yeah, it wasn't as joined up as it is now. You know, I think probably Alexander Hall is more kind of Foxton's financial, if we're mm. honest about it. So there was there was a bigger gap between the two. I think Simon Nimmo, um, who who's a great industry friend of mine. Um, yeah, somebody I, I, well, I mean, I take advice from, but I, I find very entertaining to speak to. He, he had formed Alexander Hall, and I think it just kind of, just kind of linked together, or you know, only been a year, couple of years old when I came into it. Okay, and and so, it, in terms of like leads and stuff like that, was it? How did you generate your? Did you have to generate your own leads, or were you given you know a list yeah. of telephone numbers and you have to go just smile and dial sort of thing? Pretty, pretty much. So when you joined Alexander Hall. They did it. They took no experienced brokers, so you couldn't join Alexander Hall then as an experienced broker. You had to go through the training from effectively a grad or a newbie. And your initial job, you worked in client services, which was a team of at the time it was about eight. It grew to twenty odd by the time I sort of left that team, where you, they're young guys who are doing their CMAPs and you're making kind of fifty to hundred phone calls a day. Um, you know, existing leads, new prospects people maybe that inquired about finance through Foxton's. Um, so I sort of alluded to learning how to use a telephone. I think that's probably the greatest skill that I learned there that you, you know, you, 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 
you 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 were you went in there and you're terrified of making phone calls you're kind of cold calls and things like that and after a, a month you're fine or you weren't you know if you weren't you left but if you got used to it then you, you realize that actually it was the greatest friend and yeah, it was a pretty easy way to make money so um yeah that's how you got leads was was just smiling and dialing uh, and that they just gave you a list of telephone numbers that you had to call and uh, and 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 what sort of hours what sort of hours did they have you working because I yeah, guess you were, well, were you having to work quite into the evenings because that's when people were at home because I guess not everyone uh, for our younger listeners not everyone had a mobile phone even in the early early noughties not yeah. everyone had a mobile no but that's the thing so I mean points meant prizes so for every lead I booked for a broker I got a certain number of points and then if that lead turned up to the appointment yeah your points doubled so it was, it was a real game and all your your numbers were on a a kind of scoreboard which was on the ceiling and stuff so yeah you could you could have left at 5 30 but you probably would have been booed out of the um out of the building and and you wouldn't have done very well at the end of the month and the way it worked was if there's a team of 20 of you initially your salary the salary range was between 15k a year and 40k a year and at the end of the month if you came top you'd get salary equivalent 14 if you came bottom salary equivalent 15 so again it really kind of flushed you out in terms of how it worked so it's a pretty intense and maybe by today's standard an aggressive um environment but one i loved and you learned to thrive on and um which was the basis of why that company was so 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 and continues to be so successful yeah i guess it's quite um it's quite quite sink or swim i I suppose you if if you're if you're earning 15k the the 15k bracket uh even back then uh you know for because we're about the same age uh and I think my starting salary as a as a graduate surveyor was about 21k uh and so I maintained that in my head as that was a normal uh, gra- yeah. salary range for a grad uh knowing from my own personal experience how hard it was to live in London in, in you know any part of London on that sort of money um but I'm guessing that you you were kind of starved out of the company if you weren't forced out for uh, if, if you're consistently earning that that sort of that sort of money um I, I suppose in terms in terms of having to make that many phone calls i i think one of the things that i've that i've picked up from my own experience and also uh, also from speaking to some of your peers that uh, like phil gray and rob jupp that actually one of the challenges that younger people particularly people in their 20s have is is they find it very difficult to pick up the phone um they, they much prefer to hide behind an email or, or a whatsapp or a text message um do you how, how do you feel about uh, how do you feel about that with your own teams that you work with yeah. now in your companies <laughs> it, it's funny you ask that so you know and probably people from ennis will laugh i hate email like email literally you could get rid of email tomorrow and businesses would run better like it is it's outdated uh, it's impersonal. It's very easy to be misinterpreted. Email became a thing when it cost like 50p to send a text message, right? So when yeah. messaging wasn't, you know, kind of free and everyone, oh, look, you know, you get this Hotmail account and it's free. And for whatever reason, it seems to have stuck. So I have no issue with email. I say to my team, you should only start an email if it begins with the sentence to confirm the conversation we have. So if you want to yeah. put something in writing to confirm it, or sometimes, you know, if you need to send documents or maybe, you know, 
big CCs or whatever, you know, kind of group conversation. Um, but it is the devil, like when it comes to communication, if you're actually trying to do business with somebody individually. So I always sort of say, you know, phone, well, face to face, number one, um, you know, kind of phone call number two, WhatsApp voice note. You know, I'm, I'm fond of a, a good voice note after that, you know, and kind of and, and go down from there. So look, I understand its place within business, but every successful individual I know, and I learned this very quickly, you know, when I started dealing with some, you know, some some really successful and, and what you call sort of ultra high health individuals, is you know, I would hide behind an email or a WhatsApp or you know, text or whatever it was at the time, and they would just instantly phone me back. Right. There'd be no kind of I'm going to message you back. It's like, look, I'm busy. Let's talk it through. And you find we covered so much more ground. So it's something that I try and instill, you know, certainly in myself. I'm, I'm fairly dedicated and um, to, 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 to working in that fashion. And in, in my team, I think it's you just just so, get so much more out of everything, even for the conversation. And, and it doesn't mean you're going to sell more. Maybe it kills something more. Maybe something just dies on a hill very quickly um, but at least you know you have that certainty and, and the ability to ask questions yeah I, I i can i can concur with that and i'm increasingly uh sort of hating email I and mean, I, I i've had i've had times where i've literally spent seven or eight hours a day just reading and sorting through emails right, um, right. and it's just and, and and not really achieving anything and um and increasingly when i talk to you know the management of avonmore i say to them look Please stop. Don't send me an email first. First thing, let's have mm. a conversation. Let's talk it through. Let's talk through your proposals. Let's let me understand where your your head's coming from, rather than presenting something to me in on paper without any context behind it, um, because that's where misunderstandings and misinterpretations come through. And um, but I think also from a client service perspective, you know, it's it's like it's like breaking up with you know if if you could give someone bad news particularly. Uh, it's like it's like breaking over text you know it, it's it's just not the way to go it's interesting you talk about whatsapp uh, voice notes and uh, i know you're i know you're quite fond of them um they they now have this thing called a video note i don't know if you've seen it yeah, so you, yeah i've seen i've seen i've seen yeah, yeah. Very and, good. Uh, I, and i like i like it and the reason i like it not because i like uh, not because i'm desperate for people to see my face but it's because it's limited to a minute and yeah. because you so you have to then be much more concise um Zahir my business partner in Avonmore and and other businesses he left me a seven minute voice note on Friday uh <laughs> yes but I, I, I think over two minutes is bad form I think that's kind of considered rude yeah. you know if you like within the kind of WhatsApp etiquette sort of um but yeah it's um it, yeah du double speed comes into play for sure well, well that's the point he he got me back by saying yeah well I know you listen on double speed so it's really <laughs> only a three and a half minute message yeah. <laughs> but um so just moving away from that, but uh, and back to Alexander Alexander Hall. So, how long were you doing the sort of smile and dial boiler room style uh, calling, and and when did you graduate? Was, was it when you got your CMAP? Was was that when you were able to graduate to go into, uh, you know, kind of more relationship management side of things? Yeah, so, so I think I'd say about nine months, and then went into broking. Um, at the time, all. Uh, sort of broking was face to face and mm -hmm. they just started bringing in what they call a phone broking team so there were quite a few opportunities to move across so when you did your cmap you moved across um and that was actually very good for me so i think at the time 
that team was viewed badly by brokers because obviously if you have someone come in and talk to you face to face as we've just touched on yeah you stand a better chance of building a relationship and, and and doing something meaningful with them so there was an element of yeah kind of there's a bit of a crap that came into that phone breaking team you know people that wouldn't come face to face what we'd call like rate checks you know people that were like look you want to throw some rates at me i'll listen but i'm not you know, really interested but actually what came off of that and sort of what ended up being kind of a very you know, you know my best friend in a way was you picked up a lot of international clients as well who physically couldn't come in face to face um and many of them at the time obviously a lot of middle eastern clients or a russian clients african clients you know that were starting to buy into the london market in kind of 2003 4 5 6 7 um were the wealthier clients so that's where really probably the 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 base the basis of ennis was formed in as much as whilst yeah we were doing quite a lot of churning through kind of more speculative inquiries you know, we would get a lot of the kind of gold nuggets in terms of those very wealthy clients who just physically couldn't come in. So that sort of probably, like I said, was the bedrock from Ennis and, and where it was born from, you know, those kind of international inquiries and, and learning how to manage and deal with those. And would you say that a, a lot of your peers within Alexander Hall were not valuing those clients in the same way or or, or, or you just feel like, or did you just have a better way of, of, of yeah, dealing maybe. with them? Maybe I, I just think also the market, the lending landscape wasn't really, just didn't really cater for them. Is the truth? So, you know, whilst people liked big numbers, of course, you know, I want to borrow four million, five million, whatever the number is. Yeah, I think if brokers felt that they just couldn't transact and couldn't earn off it, they could say any number. But if it wasn't going to turn into business, it didn't matter. Um, and I think that's where the sort of seed was sown for myself in terms of a business opportunity and the niche that was being underserviced. You even now, you know, you look at the big um, networks that exist, the panels they have typically aren't set up for international high net worth buyers. Yeah, if you want to service that market, then probably you're not going to be aligned to a network or um, a kind of large company which is kind of a bit more cookie cutter so yeah I, th I think it's it's fair to say that many of the brokers didn't value those leads as they probably should have been valued not because they were being um petulant or, or flippant with them but just because you know we didn't have the tools to lend to them um and so yeah we just took a bit of time to learn who is lending to these people what do they want and and the kind of you know the the idea for Ennis was born did i mean did you you know you would have been you know in early mid-20s at the time um did you did you see that was it was the opportunity instant or relatively instantly apparent to you about the ability to the the relationship management potential the relationship potential the long-term relationship potential and the long-term business potential of catering and looking after these clients that as you say weren't that well catered for and if you were you know, I suppose if you were just a sort of um, commission junkie and you and you would have, I suppose, you would have said, well, I, I can in the time it's going to take me to research the, the the lending options for this client. I could do three other clients that would make me in aggregate more money. I mean, so did you see the opportunity then at, at yeah. the time or, or, or for a longer term business or, or, or did it take a bit longer for you to, to sort of work that out? I mean, my father said you don't get rich working for anyone else. It's basically, and he instilled that into me from a fairly young age. So I was kind of always looking for an opportunity or a niche. Um, so, 
that was probably always there in the back of my mind. It had been drummed into me from a fairly young age, you know, that kind of if you wanted to get be successful, be rich, you know, that you had to work for yourself and create your own business. Um, so I was kind of on the lookout for that, to be honest. So I wasn't too worried about maybe losing a few points or pounds here if it meant, you know, that I could start sort of building my idea to have my own company. So and and so how you know, I suppose you left you left Alexander Hall in two thousand seven, set up yeah. at Ennis in two thousand seven. How how soon how soon after you moved into being a broker did you were you starting to plan for your you know the that entrepreneurial venture like when so presumably that so what you're saying is you kind of already had the idea quite early on that you wanted to be have your own business but Mm -hmm. what was what was what was the point where you're starting to almost plan your own exit out of Alexander Hall well I think the attraction for me immediately of, of the idea of even going into mortgage broking was that you could work for yourself yeah. So probably before I even joined Alexander Hall, it was like, yeah, this is good because it will lead to me working for myself. And I think, um, you know, the barrier to entry of having your own broker is quite low. I mean, literally, you, know, you or I can can sit in our front room and do it and plug into a network and and there's not huge capital outlay. I think now it's probably harder because obviously you know, there are links to banks and 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 lenders and kind of a lot of things that go on. So I would say before I even joined Alexander Hall, the attraction of probably being there was that it could, yeah, it could lead to that. So I'd say pretty immediately. Uh, and and when what what was the tipping point for you that when you knew you could, you know, that you knew you could leave Alexander Hall and set up Ennis and it be it will be a success. Or, I, I think, or, or was there a bit of a wing in the prayer? At, at, at yeah, I, I, th- I think there's always a bit of a, a kind of crossing your fingers and hoping moment. Um, Isla and I, who set up uh, Ennis, you had a couple of, you know, probably half a dozen big clients each. Um, and, you know, a lot of them had almost been on at us to sort of say, look, it would be better if you could do more for us. You know, you can maybe do other other areas of finance that we weren't looking at time or we weren't allowed to at Alexander Hall. Um, the, the kind of culture at Alexander Hall was probably quite restrictive at the time in terms of spending any time outside of the office or you're know, going to client meetings. You know, you're very much in the office, which is cool. Like it was the culture and it worked and um yeah and if you if you did what you were told to do and you were successful you earned the money so I had no real issue with it but also like I said as I started to build relationships with probably half a dozen or a dozen bigger clients that I was doing more and more business for yeah there were pressures to like come to lunch come down and see this development yeah spend a day with me or whatever and it was sort of becoming increasingly hard to kind of balance the kind of culture of being sat at your desk for kind of 12 hours a day versus yeah, actually, I'd quite like to go down to Folkestone or up to you know, the Midlands or whatever and actually have a look at a site with you or you know, just go and spend some time with you and your family kind of thing. So I I don't I can't remember the exact point. Obviously, I remember when we set up and I remember leaving, but I I think it was probably like anything in life, like a company, a relationship, uh, whatever, right? When you leave something, you don't know there's there's probably a moment where you go, right, fuck it, I'm gonna do it. But it's usually a gradual build up of time rather than you know some huge flashpoint that happens. Um, and so when we did it, it, it felt right. And yeah, you know, you're always guessing 
And we did guess because we started uh, Endless on the 7th of August 2007. And I think if you Google start with a credit crunch, it's like a week later. So our timing was just absolutely horrific. But even during that period afterwards, when you know, when you know, when things really went tits up for for the the industry and and the world, it never felt like the wrong decision. And I think that's been a, something that's kind of stayed with me throughout my kind of journey as an entrepreneur. That no matter how bad things have got at certain times, I've never thought, oh, I've made the wrong decision here, or oh, I wish, you know, like you are where you are, right? And I think you're you make decisions based on what's presented in front of you. And as long as you make decisions in good faith and with the right intentions, yeah, you don't look back and say, oh, I wish I would have done that, I wish I would have done that. Yeah, maybe if I'd waited, probably if I'd waited another three months, we never would have set it up, right? So probably better we left, we set it up and we had a really rough six or 12 months, but we learned a lot and we figured a lot of stuff out during that time, then we didn't do anything at all. And I suppose the other thing was you were young, you're both young men at the time, no dependence or minimal, minimum dependence. Yeah. Um, you know, you can tighten your belt and, and, and Correct. you hadn't, you didn't have an awful lot to lose. There wasn't a, an awful lot riding on it. The worst case scenario, you just go back and get another job. So Correct. it, yeah. it, it, it it's really interesting, actually, that if I look at some of the uh, some of your peers uh, in the industry, um, and many of whom we've spoken to here as uh, on here as well, they've all they were all established around the time of of the credit crunch, um, mm. and and it's quite and it's quite interesting that um, in many ways, and, and I'm and I'm curious to get your take on it, actually the it was possibly the best time, one of the best times to set up a brokerage because before the credit crunch, actually accessing capital for most businesses was not that difficult in a lot of cases. You know, I've, I've used this example before, but um, uh, a, a, a business associate of mine telling me that he used to send his relationship management manager at Dun Dunbar a text saying he needed five million quid in a solicitor's account by the next morning and there was no questions asked. To, to going through the far more cre rigorous credit process, uh, a far more regulated uh, environment that that we experience today. Um, but certainly, you know, there was a this, there 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 appears to be that there was a much greater need for a broker who had his finger on the pulse, his or her finger on the pulse, to be able to access the, the sources of capital that existed after the after the financial during and after the financial crisis in a way that maybe there wasn't as much of a need beforehand i mean what's your you know what's your view on that and you know do you, do you think actually in hindsight that worked out to be a a really good bit of timing for you yeah no i, I agree with with that sentiment entirely i think certainly a lot of the developers um that i knew that i'd been trying to do more work with were just all serviced by a lot of the irish banks who were lending very heavily at the time so yeah when they kind of fell over if you like a lot of people were looking for new homes on the development side now not not the ideal time to be looking for for kind of new homes um pardon the pun you know on development stuff but it creates an opportunity there and i think the same thing that's happened now really you know when there's a bit of a, a broker and a, a lender as well you know we we do better especially if you're in a specialist lending market when there is a little bit of turmoil i mean it's probably a bit of a strong word you know but you know when the sheet the tree is shaken a bit 
Um, so I think, yeah, entirely valid points that yeah, I'm a great fan, you know, wrap the industry in as much regulation, make it as hard as possible to get a loan, you know, ev make everything very, you know, tight and, 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 and sort of a barrier to entry. All these things, because like I said, it just makes it our role as a specialist so much more important. Yeah, it, the, the more of a moat that you can build around a uh, Correct, you yeah. know build around you, you know your your franchise your proposition the the better it is for you um yeah and it, it's ironic that i think you know you see it in the tech space now where um the some of the biggest advocates for for tech regulation are the are the big tech companies themselves yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they of course they've got the infrastructure to be able to handle uh to handle that um i i just again going back to the start of uh, of ennis um your partnership with Isla, you you were working together at Alexander Hall. Mm. How did you know he was the right the right person to kind of go on this journey with? I mean, or, or, you know, how, what were what were the qualities? What, what are the sort of qualities you each have that that you sort of bring to the table? Um, I think he he Isla over time in the team I was in was i'll say he's the second best broker because obviously you know the top <laughs> spot was taken he might he might remember it the other way around but you know look professionally he was very strong so number one right you want the best people on your team and he certainly fitted that category um you know we got on we initially really couldn't stand each other for probably three or six months you know we sort of clashed but you know again there's a sort of competitive professional rivalry there um, I think we've always been pretty direct people, like pretty straight to the point. Um, I think we both have a healthy, healthy appetite for risk. So I think we could kind of see that in each other. And when we started talking about the project, I think initially there's four people, right? So there's four of us that were talking about the project. Um, and as it became more and more real, they were being a bit flaky or I don't know if now's the right time or to build up a bit more capital or whatever. Whereas sort of Isla and I were always the two that kind of just, stayed the course I'm like yeah let's do it right let's just go ahead and do it and and that's something I really like about Isla and I you know I still enjoy to this day with him that yeah we'll just talk through a million ideas a week should we do this should we do this should we do this there's no kind of judgment of it's a shit idea or it's a good idea I mean we'll, we'll say it but and then actually if we think that something makes sense we'll just go ahead and we'll try and execute on it and sometimes it comes off and sometimes it doesn't and if it doesn't you've you've learned a lot about something you didn't know about before um so i think that's kind of what i've you know what i enjoy to this day about working with him um yeah that he's kind of to a certain extent fairly fearless um and also yeah this kind of idea that although uh socially now you know we're different people in terms of just who we are we yeah if we're in a zoom meeting or like a meeting face to face and somebody says something I'll smile and I'll look and I'll be smiling, right? We'll be thinking exactly the same thing. You know, we've kind of probably because we've been through such a journey anyway, like over 17 or 18 years. So yeah, you kind of we're we're very much in sync now. And I think even probably back then we were fairly in sync with how we thought as well. So um yeah, like it's we, we we've always got along. We've never really had like a stern words or whatever, you know, we've fallen out, we've you know, we've if we call a spade a spade to each other but there's never been a, like kind of big flashpoint or something that's it, it's a nice thing in a kind of entrepreneurial journey to have that because it's a lonely place even when there's two of you right um and so let alone one it's um yeah it's kind of it's a nice way to be
how do you how did you sort of manage the the sort of the ego component of it of as as you've as you grew the business in terms of you know how do you manage the titles you know you joint mm-hmm. ceo you know i think it's certainly something that Zahara and i've had to ma- navigate within avermore for you know the last eight years um and actually sort of it, it's making sure that you know i think we both you both want to be heard you still you both want to have your mm-hmm. voice heard you you want to be recognized for for who you are but at the end of the day um sometimes you know sometimes uh sometimes ego can be a problem you know yeah, in, no, in, I mean, in either direction e- ego is a nightmare in, in everything i mean professionally socially it kind of especially for for males i think kind of drives yeah so much behavior behavior good and bad um so we we tossed a coin for co and md <laughs> so that's kind of how we decided on that um and it's in, it's an interesting question because in the early days, especially as the company was growing, we were very keen to be that person that was doing stuff, right? So it's like, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that, you know, like kind of whatever it was, like in terms of, oh, we need to manage the bookkeeping. Oh, I'll do that. Oh, we need to, you want to be seen to be the kind of the person that's a leader. And mm. even if it's two of you, you want to be like the smart one or the successful yeah, one yeah. or whatever, right? But then strangely, as I guess we've probably become more comfortable in our own skin and we've achieved a level of success, which you're probably um, professionally, financially, socially, we've probably achieved a level that we kind of feel is is adequate, right, we call it, that we start going reverse. It's like, I'm not doing that. You do that. (laughs) I'm crap (laughs) at this. Like, you're far better at this than I am. You do it. So, and I think that's probably a point especially you know when there's two of you where or or more where the business really starts to thrive when actually you drop that ego and you start saying I'm not very good at like you're better at this than I am why don't you do this or whatever and I think yeah that's probably why you know the last four or five years of Ennis we've achieved three times the amount that we did in the first 12 years of Ennis um because yeah, you 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 know what you're good at. You stick to it, and you're you're very focused on it. Um, yeah, you you hear it a lot from podcasts and things you read where you know people are interviewing uber successful individuals. I don't know Bezos or whatever, right? Bad example, but you get the idea. And actually, it's these people they're just they're so aware of what they're strong and weak at, and they are prepared to delegate and 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 kind of just stick to the areas that they're good at. And I think that's for for ourselves as well has been a a huge boost for the business when yeah we've kind of dropped the ego I think is probably the way of putting it best yeah I, I mean I think there's a interesting parallels there of the last few years where I think for a very long time everything you know we we, we became these sort of dual dual single points of failure where everything was mm-hmm. going through us uh you know right down to you know redrafting press releases you know the, you know for, for stuff <laughs> that really wasn't important and you know, I think the moment that we that we sort of dropped that and we entrusted the team to do, you know, like entrusted the team to actually do mm. the work, you empower them. Um, you know, I think we've also seen a similar uptick in the in the success of in the success of the business to to the point now, of course, you know, as as you know, and as most people know, we've we've obviously stepped away from the day to day running of the business, and, uh, and I know that you have too as well, and we'll but and we can, and we'll obviously get to that in a in a moment. Mm. Um, but you know, in terms of the story of Ennis, you know, you started it in 2007. Obviously, you've got this rocky patch 
um you know i think northern rock was what september 2007 yeah, yeah. so yeah uh, and then i mean i i at the time i was in uh central london uh property commercial property investment at uh, cushman and wakefield um and it was that sort of year and a half that was in that team before i left to go into private equity was it was just it was like you knew the car it was like watching a car crash in slow motion you just knew yeah. it was just getting worse and worse and worse um where what was the sort of turning point for you where, when you sort of started to th- the, the the sort of the nose of the plane start to to come up um i'm not sure really i mean we didn't have maybe i'm looking back rose tinted glasses and i probably have to ask Ash about this here maybe give me a bit more of a kind of reality check but it was it kind of it was what it was right in those days and I think we as you had touched on earlier we had very little overheads you know, it was two of us in a little serviced office um yeah we didn't have kids you know we didn't have big mortgages at the time or anything like that so yeah we, it was kind of all right like and, and we we're probably so so dumb I don't know, maybe or naive maybe I don't know what the word is that we we kind of just it was what it was right and I think yeah that's uh, it was a good learning curve. So I think probably I've I've felt more um, inadequate, if you like, when the market races and you see you always bump on LinkedIn about we're doing like a million million deals a week or a million deals a day kind of thing. And I'm thinking well, we're, we're not that busy at the moment. Like it's all right, <laughs> we're going mm. okay. Um, I, I remember especially you know when there was that stamp duty holiday like a few years ago and you had these kind of oh we're sleeping under our desks you know because we're buried <laughs> under and I was saying we're not really that busy like I mean there's no reason we should have been because obviously it was targeted at a kind of first time buyer rather than the top end of the market um so it was probably more when we've been in growth mode and I've been unable to grow that I've sort of felt you know I've been conscious of you know the markets and kind of whether they're good or whether they're bad um, but the early days, you know, we did a few big deals for some big clients. You know, like I, I mentioned, you know, we probably had half a dozen people who were doing quite a bit. So we did all right in those early days. You know, we probably struggled a bit more, probably in that nose lifting phase, you know, kind of when there wasn't quite the chaos. So maybe that's just our personality types, you know, that I think, you know, we, I don't know, I enjoy stress, but I'm I'm pretty good in it, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm it, I enjoy that kind of battle mode. So um for me i'd probably find it a bit harder when things were a bit flatter and in terms of um in terms of that you know i suppose the growth the growth phase and the frustrations there i mean presumably the the, the biggest challenge is finding the right people to yeah. to to help to help the business yeah. grow um and and how and i suppose how did you how did you resolve that how did you get around that i i, I don't i don't know we ever have like okay. I, I think it's okay. I think to, I think to this day it's 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 the number one thing of any business, right? Isn't it that you um yeah that, that it's people, 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 right? Like it, it's just I I think where we where where Ennis has been good um is I think if people come in and they have the right mindset and they want to earn money and they're interested in progressing I mean, it sounds all a bit sort of old school talk, using those analogies I think we are literally like the perfect model for people like people will plug in they'll earn really really good cash and yeah we can have a good laugh with it I think 
the issue has been, and we still to this day, is training. You know, it's probably one of those things where I remember the training I had at Alexander Hall was very strong. Um, I don't even know really, and it's, it's a lot better now, you know, there's a lot more in place, but I still always question that, you know, how much are we improving people? Um, and I think the, you know, Isla sent me something the other day, which said, you know, you, you recruit people on spec when you find good people rather than when there's a need to recruit. And I think that's always one of the big problems for any business that you're like, right, I need to find three people for this role, this new team or new department or whatever that I'm I'm building. And it's very difficult to actually just find those three people because you're just, you, you, there's complete bias in your head. You know, you're already sold on like, yeah, he's all right or she's all right. You know, when do you start? Whereas actually, probably you wouldn't have hired those people had there not been that kind of, you need to find three people in the next couple of weeks. So we have this, um, this rule internally at Ennis called OQP, uh, which is only quality people. So when we kind of um, discuss people and, you know, we sit in a room and we talk about, you know, what do we think of so-and-so, if a conversation goes on for like more than five minutes or there's opposing views, one of us will just say OQP and then we go, no. So we like move on, right, it's not. And I think that's kind of, um, that's how we've sort of, um, that's how we've kind of filtered now that it's like, if somebody's quality, we will make them work within the company. If they're not, then we're not going to force sort of the round peg in, in the square hole or whatever the analogy is. Yeah, listen, I, I, I think if I if I look back on all the hiring mistakes we've made, it's it, it's been hiring hiring to fill a need rather than just seeing a, a quality individual and, and taking mm-hmm. them on and, and trying to find a role for them within within the organization. Um I, I guess I guess on the flip side one of the things that seems to be a regular issue for a lot of a lot of brokerages is staff retention and how you know you presumably you'll have seen you know over the 16 years that you've been going you'll have seen a good amount of of churn mm-hmm. within the organization but how, how but then at the same time since we started you know got, if i use an example someone like chris whitney he's he's been with uh he, he's been with ennis since since we started Avonmore, you know, so you obviously have the ability to retain the right quality staff. Um, what what what's the approach that you've taken around uh, around staff retention? You know, have how have you gone about um, ensuring that the, the right people stay, even if yeah. uh, the the people who aren't the best people move on? Yeah. So look, so look, I think it's very much as a meritocracy, and as much as you know, we will, if you are good and you are executing, we will feed you more and more. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's not, there is a level playing field, you know, there's no kind of, you don't get these leads or you don't get these leads, but if you are successful and you're working and you're converting, you'll get more and you may get more than him is the truth. So what we tend to find is people will come in, there's usually a sort of an 18 month window where some people are like, don't like this, don't like you, don't like Isla, don't like whatever, right? Yeah, did it is and they tend to sort of go whereas when people sort of do that 18 months they tend to be the people that actually are yeah we like it and obviously we deal with larger loans so what we tend to find is there's not you know that kind of continual churn of deals so people do come in sometimes from a brokerage where they're doing 20 deals a month um and they're used to that continual just killing 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 um and then, you know, they have to flip from doing sort of like 
20% catching and 80% killing to complete inversion of like 90% catching and 10% killing and doing maybe two or three deals a month, but they pay better. So it's usually, we try and support people as, as much as we can in those early days and talk to people like, look, don't worry if you're not doing everything that you used to do at your old brokerage and the kind of numbers that you are, you're working in the correct fashion. There's a different way of working you know, when we're dealing with high net worth individuals or international clients. Um, so someone like Witters is, is you know, a phenomenal broker um, and you know, fits exactly the mould of people we like to work with. So he's always, I like to think, been supported very well in terms of you need business, you don't need business, you'll turn it on and off um, and just provide the platform that he's needed. So, yeah, that's kind of how, how we've always operated. Uh, I just it leads me to a sort of hunting analogy where you know you're you, the people who are doing that sort of 20 deals a month they're, they're, they're used to being on the uh, uh, on they used to be on that driven shoot in uh, on, on that farm somewhere where the pheasants are flying overhead every, every five seconds uh, as opposed to you know sort of Steve Ranella meat eater style where they're they're going and hunting Correct. elk camping camping out in the woods for for four four or five days and they get one shot in a they get one shot in a week uh it's a very very different approach um uh so in terms of in terms of the growth of ennis you know you you obviously have been adding adding to the team and 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 both in across a number of different service lines um how long have you had the international offices of of ennis i mean when when were they established i think the first one which is where i'm sat now was about six or seven years ago. Uh, so we, we first opened Monaco, then Dubai, um, then I believe Jersey, and then in Switzerland. Um, so yeah, th- that really transformed Ennis actually, the international offices. I think we we felt that all the brokers were just really, were, were fishing in the same pond. And they're sort of race to the bottom in terms of pricing. Um, yeah, everyone was just sharing all the same deals. And the kind of person that got the deal was just the one that maybe just at the time either charged the least or just happened to be in the right place at the right time rather than actually working with clients. Whereas we found but just by moving that point of attack to internationally, you know, people we built we get back to that kind of building relationships again. And so yeah, down here in Monaco. I'd say we have a pretty free run at it, but like I said, if if I'm down here and I go and meet someone for a coffee and we get along and our kids both go to the same school or you know, we have mutual friends in common, likewise, you know, people at all the other international offices, it's a damn sight more likely to do business than with some nondescript broker in a city that, you know, maybe they've spoken to and is charging a bit less. So we sort of found it, it's been transformative for us actually. Um, I mean, hard yards is difficult. Um, yeah, it comes back people. Right? It's all about people. You know, it's all well and good saying, look, I want to open up an office in Zurich, uh, but you need a good person who understands what you're doing and is prepared to work remotely or by themselves for a period of time before you build teams around them. Um, so that was the biggest challenge. Um, that they're not cheap. You know, there's a lot of legal fees. You know, there's a lot of physical fees in terms of offices and infrastructure and regulation um and you know staff in the early days um so they probably take 18 to 24 months to break even um but then once they do you know then then they're real 
cash cows sounds a little too mercenary, but you know they they they, they operate and, and they very much stand on their own two legs and 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 then some. So um, that was a kind of the the cycle that we had found with them. So, and and in terms of in terms of where next is there are, are there any you know are there any off international offices that you're looking that you're looking at that would be uh, you know in, interesting? I mean, if some of our listeners around the world uh, <laughs> who might who, who might be interested in a job in some yeah, far flung no, no, locations. But, but, We'd always be interested. I mean, we we've often spoken about Asia, you know. So obviously, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Singapore, these kind yeah. of places. But without being too basic, it's a long way, right? You know, so it's quite easy in Monaco or Zurich or whatever to you know for there to be some kind of link. Whereas you are the other side of the world. Um, I think the direction of travel of Ennis for the next probably twelve to twenty four months will actually not be increased number of offices, but we're looking to move away from pure debt um, and move more into the, the holistic advisory space. So um, kind of almost uh, going down that kind of multifamily office route of being able to offer structuring, legal, taxation advice, um, or at least be able to kind of advise on it and, and, and work with people in finding the best home with the best professional for it. So that's kind of our, our next evolution, if you like, rather than necessarily expanding the international you know, offering, office offering. Does that give you some form of protection in, from a from a business model perspective because you're then less reliant on tra- on transaction fees and you can therefore, you know, charge well, you, yes, you, you've got you've got a more sort of a more stable uh, revenue source as a result? Yeah, absolutely spot on. So, yeah, obviously, um, any mortgage broker in the UK probably had a pretty horrific end to last year after the, you know, the kind of um, the backlash after the budget, you know, it was delivered by Lives Trust, probably had a pretty poor start to the year as well. Um, yeah, we were in a very fortunate position that we obviously had the securities back lending, we had the corporate finance. So, yeah, we obviously want every part of the business to thrive, but we are now within a debt space fairly protected from on a diversification level that you know if one level if UK mortgages are down international are up if all mortgages are down you know the corporate finance is up or whatever um but certainly from a larger business perspective you know that it does create that recurring income um which you know is attractive on on many levels it means you know first of January each year you're not sat there wondering you know what the number is going to be at the end of the year yeah, you know, you've got. I mean, certainly speaking from a lender's perspective, when you start the start the financial year with a loan book that's that's generating that sort of residual income, um, mm. yeah, there, there's you, you, it does help with planning and budgeting to a certain degree. Of course, you yes. still you've still got to feed the machine uh, na- uh, in in the rest of the year, but you've got a degree of insulation that if you you know you don't you're not starting the year with a, a big big fat zero. Uh, and um, I mean, I know I know certain people thrive off that type of thing but at the same time uh it, it's more challenging uh, and in terms of the i suppose in terms of the future for ns you talk about going down more of a multi-family route um in terms so your your role has changed uh recently obviously a big announcement earlier in the year that you're you're moving to a more of a non-exec space so you know welcome to the club uh yeah. and and i imagine you're struggling as i am uh, and Zahair does with uh, trying to keep your hands out of the, you know, yeah. hands out out of the operational side of things. Um, what what was the driver for that decision? And uh, you know, how how have you found the transition? 
Yeah, so look, I think when I moved down to Monaco three and a half years ago, there was obviously a physical split. You know, we have the office down here, but it's a lot smaller than it is in London, uh, which is still the largest operation. Um, Toby, who was headed up our Dubai office, moved back to London after he started the family. Um, and I always have this saying, that, you know, kind of if the police crash through the door, um, you know, and they say, right, who's in charge? Everyone needs to point to the same person. Otherwise, you know, kind of you don't have a coherent team. And Toby was that person, right? He was the guy on, on the ground day to day. He was the person speaking to all the officers. You know, he was he was knitting everything together. So as much as ego, you know, going back to that word, um, you know, it's nice to kind of hold a, a title. I wasn't the managing director of the business. It's the reality, you know, like I was highly influential um, and I like to think, you know, drove a lot of the kind of ideas and, and, and a lot of things forward. But on a day to day basis, I was not the managing director. You know, I wasn't the person that kind of was was pulling the team together or, or, or driving sort of daily operation. So it was probably driven by wanting to kind of reward, if you like, Toby for the role that he clearly played in the business. Um, and also, yeah, it's probably the same reason you did. I think there's a point at which you've kind of done all the stuff you can do within a company. And I think 17 years is a decent, decent run. And certainly, you know, going from two people to 40, 45 across five offices internationally and various business lines, you know, sometimes you do just need a bit of your know, fresh blood and fresh ideas and, and to give people that responsibility. Obviously, I did start 10 Capital three years ago. Um, and that sort of now is kind of 15 people, I think, across a couple of offices. Um, and there is a clear conflict that exists between broker and lender. You know, that, that was always there. Um, and so it was limiting my ability to get involved in in stuff at 10. Although, you know, I'm only a non-exec at 10, yeah, it did create a, a bit of a barrier. Um, so I think by by stepping out, um, it probably removed or reduced that you know, barrier to, to being able to sort of look into the business a bit more. Um, and yeah, look, it... it it's been a weird sort of transition um, because you do miss, you know, there's stuff which you just are naturally party to when you're in the business, which you just don't see. Um, so that is unusual. Um, but I've been pretty, I've quite enjoyed it, is the truth. Yeah, it's allowed me to, to kind of get involved at where I think I can kind of add value rather than where I feel I have to, it's my duty to get involved. Um, so yeah, look, it, it's been a positive step. You know, Ennis has, has has had a phenomenal actually quarter just gone. You know, we, like I said, we had a um, challenging end of last year, and quarter one was a bit crap. Um, but you know, we, we've really sort of you know, hit our bootstraps the last sort of you know, few months, especially. So you know, whether it's good or bad, it doesn't seem to be you know, like nothing's falling apart, right? If anything, you know, kind of it just seems to have driven on, which is, which is cool to see. Like I genuinely. Yeah, happy to see that happen. So. And and, and it, but is, is Ida still retained uh, his his sort of uh, his role as, as it was before? So is, is he still is he still operationally active within within Ennis, yeah. even as you're not? So I guess yeah. you've got you've got that degree of comfort as well that he uh, that that he he's more involved on a day to day basis than uh, anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, I think what you touched on earlier is once you sort of give a bit more power to people within the team, we do a lot more. So I think from a day-to-day -day perspective, you know, what he does now versus what he did 
four years ago will be a very different type of role, probably would be a more you know, leaning towards non-exec style operation than kind of a day-to-day CEO. Yeah. Um, but as you said, yes, he he's there, you know, he his name's above the door, you know, the buck stops with him kind of thing. So there is a lot of comfort that can be sort of gathered or gained from that. Do, do, and have you had, uh, as I, I certainly have, had in the last sort of 18 months there are some days where it can be a bit quiet you know you're sat at your desk and there's not a lot (laughs) there's not a lot happening have you had that experience yet I mean unfortunately whether fortunately or not I'm not sure it's entirely fortunate at the moment uh my days are very very full and I've got a lot on my plate all all of a sudden again um have have you had that experience a a, a couple of times now of, of oh what do I do now yeah no definitely Isla and I talk about it quite a bit actually um, I think you know my my role within NS and Ten has always been as a sort of a rainmaker, so yeah. you know bringing business in, um, and probably I became a little bit lazy, um, yeah, in the kind of last couple of years of just getting out and socialising and networking a bit because I kind of stuff was just coming into my inbox on my phone naturally, um, so I've kind of it's given me a bit of a kick up the arse to get out and about a bit more and connect with a few people. Um, and as is always a way, you know, you make a bit more of an effort and lo and behold, you know, a lot more business comes as a result of it. So yeah, my, my role very much still is to, is to, is to drop sort of business into both, um, both companies and, you know, typically you know, quarterback some of the larger stuff, but yeah, no, it, it's absolutely something I've found and it, it's a, it's a strange sensation because but also I think you need to one a broker the top broker Alexander Hall when I first joined yeah I was kind of saying you know what is what is the key to sort of you know being successful or whatever and I always remember one of the things he said the key to being is is being able to enjoy the quiet times um because you know there will be times you know even when you're broking in a market where you know, Christmas, right? Bugger all happens at Christmas. You know, nothing's going to happen on the 28th or 29th of December, generally, okay? So it's the ability to actually switch off and enjoy that. So I've probably been very guilty of going the other way and being completely work-obsessed 24-7 to the detriment of, you know, lots of things, including your family time and things. So I'm now just making a bit more of an effort to kind of <laughs> slightly make up for that, whilst also making sure that I keep myself relevant and and, and actually useful for the for the businesses. Yeah, well, that, that that's um that that sounds like a good kind of a good kind of balance anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, just talking about Ten Capital, obviously you privately mm-hmm. have, have give, told, told me about the sort of meteoric story there, but you, you know you you've you've been backed by a, a significant um private equity organization to to effectively go and lend significant sums of money I think something in the region of about half a billion that they've committed or they've mm-hmm. given you kind of commitments towards um how, how did you you know how how did you get the idea for for it or how, how did you guys collectively get the idea for it and um you know how how has how has the experience been over the last few years to the point where you're now lending what 200 million sterling a year um, yeah. which is you know which is no no mean feat yeah so so yeah as Ira and I became uh wealthier personally yeah through through sort of the successes at Ennis we we'd always lent out our money on you know kind of this that and the other so we you know we we were kind of lending 
not a decent, not an insignificant amount of money personally. And we just said, look, we should probably formalise it and grow it. Um, I think the next iteration of a lot of brokers is going into that lending space. Like you said, you have got that kind of you know recurring income or at least your know, income that stays on the books for a little while. Um, and so it was actually during lockdown that again we had a little more time in our hands. So as always, you're know, wanting not you know, to stay busy, and we contacted Matt Watson, who's a CEO, um, and said, look we want to do this, is it something you're interested in? Um, and he was like, yeah, look, actually the timing is quite good for one reason or another. Um, and it was kind of just really born from there. Um, and I think from what I'd seen at Ennis, you know, the niche that existed in the lending space was on international property. You know, bridging loans do not exist in certain countries. It's not a thing, but if structured correctly, you know, we could execute on them. Um, and so I think the success that we've had has simply been because there's just a clear niche there, right? But nobody's feeling that we've been able to, and we were very lucky, you know, with with sort of backing from, from from Elliot. That I think a lot of funders of bridging companies um, in the UK see international stuff as risk, whereas Elliot viewed it that no, that that's diversification, that's de-risking, you know, as far as they were concerned. So we were very lucky to find a partner that kind of shared our our, our vision in that. Um, but look, it, it, it's tricky. And I think you, from a broker perspective, you come into a very gung-ho in terms of, you know, lend, lend, lend. Um, but luckily, Isla and I you know, don't have a say in what's lent on. You know, we're very experienced and, and very professional, um, you know, credit team and, and committee. Um, so that's just been a good learning curve, you know, to kind of temper um sort of uh yeah kind of ambitions and, and sort of we lend on uh and i've enjoyed it it's been really interesting actually i think the yeah having been on the other side of a fence for so long i know all the games i know yeah, yeah I, I i i can see 90 percent of them just from reading the initial email or inquiries we get or you know the kind of pressure points or the pain points so I think whilst I've learned a huge amount from the team that's come in who are experienced in that field, I think I've hopefully been able to add a lot of value as well, because it's like, well, I kind of know I'm on the other side of the fence. I sent that email, yeah, 18 months ago. So I know, I kind of know what the kind of question, you know, the questions that need to be answered are. Yeah, no, I, you're sort of po- uh, poacher turned gamekeeper, aren't you? So Correct, yeah. there's, 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 you know all the tricks in the book. Mm. Um, and I, I guess what's the what's the sort of medium to long-term game plan for for both of those businesses is it is it to keep growing them buy buy and build buy and build or do you see at some point uh i mean looking at ns for example probably must be a very attractive proposition for uh, a larger multi-family office or uh, uh or, or even a private bank as as an acquisition target uh, have you have you put any thought into into some sort of exit at some point in the future whether that's partial or total yeah i think it's it's obviously something, yeah, as a business owner, you're always thinking about um, because, you know, the kind of um, the exit is in, again, coming back to ego, is that kind of success point, wow, you yeah. know, it was sold, it was successful. But, you know, it, it, it it's very profitable. Um, and whilst we don't have any recurring income there, we have you know, what we refer to as reoccurring. Um, yeah. And so it is a very valuable asset on a kind of annual basis in terms of 
yeah, we've worked bloody hard over 17 years to build it. It's, it's quite nice to take some <laughs> take some reward out of it on a sort of uh, a kind of quarterly basis. Um, I think we probably would have thought about it um, seriously had sort of COVID and the pandemic not come. Uh, we were kind of getting to that point where we had grown significantly. You know, we'd got to you know nicely profitable, diverse lending platform. We originate obviously a huge amount of interesting clients. And so we spoke about it at length actually probably a year ago, Ira and I, and we sort of decided actually probably, you know, the next iteration of, of getting into that holistic advisory space. Yeah, we'll probably take, you like to think it will take two to three years, but that probably means it takes three to five. And then probably at that point, you're going to have a think again at whether maybe that's the point that you've done everything you can with it. So. I think we've got got a little bit more to run with it, but you know we're always open to to ideas and partners and 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 you know on that side of things because that is the nature of running a business. It's an asset like anything else. Um, and then on ten side, yeah, look, it's probably fairly early in the day to be doing that. Um, it would be yeah, we always sort of you know throw around this number of lending a billion. I mean that's a phenomenal number to lend and little or or no lenders actually do you ever get to that point maybe to get you know within the bridging space something like together, together but you, look yeah. at how, you look at how sort of diverse their product range is i mean it's they're not really a bridger anymore no, not no. anymore yeah, they're, they're, they're. so on that side of things i'd like to give that a bit more of a run um and then again i don't even know necessarily that's about the exit and sort of sailing off into the sunset with a check but that's probably more about well look can someone take us to the next level right we've built this machine and we've got this idea that works we've proved it works you know if someone came along and says actually look we can probably we can two three x what you're doing just because of whatever it is the network we have the access to capital we have you know the then that's interesting uh, because, you know, you know, as an entrepreneur that I think when you're young, you have this thing of like what motivates you? money, 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 money. And actually, once you get a bit of money, money doesn't it motivates you if you want it. But you understand if you have success, the money will flow. Right. So, you know, for me, that's it, it's more interesting now that we do something that's successful and grows. And then look, we'll get rich off the back of it. I mean, that's going to happen naturally. Well, and also, like from a lifestyle perspective, uh, how how is your life how is your life going to be impacted positively by have, by someone right cutting you a massive check? Um, mm. You know, as it's, as you speak to me from you know from sunny Monaco, in whilst I'm I'm in you know Surrey in in the rain, uh, you know you you've already got a pretty good lifestyle. It's gonna it's all, all you're talking about is just a bigger. Are we talking about bigger yachts here, really? Isn't yeah, it? So, no, I, I think so. My, I, me and my dad spoke about this years ago, and he sort of said. Once you get to a certain level of income or wealth, even if you double it, it has very little impact on what you do, right? Because, okay, maybe instead of flying business, you fly private, but whatever, right? Like, yeah. I mean, if you want to do it, if you really want to go and fly private, we go and book some private. But I don't want to fly to Dubai private. It'd be boring as hell. You know, I enjoy being an Emirates, having a little wander around and see what's going on, <laughs> see who's on the plane and, you know, like moaning about the food or whatever, getting the M&Ms. And, you know, so it's sort of, um, yeah, like it becomes a dick measuring competition rather than actually anything that materially, your life doesn't change. No. Um, do you, um, in terms of, in terms of business, businesses outside of, outside of NSU, um, 
you know, do people approach you for for investment? Do, do, do people pitch you investment ideas? And 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 you know, do you have do you ever invest in startups and things like that? Is that something you've ever ever entered you know ent- entered into or engaged in? Yeah. So so yes, they do. I think the difficulty we found, yeah, you know, especially when as NS or ten, you know, not taking myself aside personally, is that people have. When I look into businesses, you know, typically much smaller businesses. People have a hugely inflated view of what it's worth, firstly. <laughs> and I can see a lot of the problems that exist in it because I've been there, right? So it's not that I'm perfect and they're not. It's just I've been there. I know this is an issue. You probably don't even think it's an issue now, but believe me, it is. Um, and so, yeah, when we've looked to do that, I've kind of felt a bit like sometimes I'm just trying to nick something off somebody by offering them something crap or they're getting assaulted. But it's not really about that. It's just... I know kind of where the problems lie. Um, yeah, this year I made a fairly large investment uh, that I became the largest shareholder in a AIM listed, publicly listed business. Um, so that was kind of a sort of fairly large foray for myself personally into that. Um, and like I said, Isla and I lend quite a lot of money. So rather than sort of a VC investor, you know, we tend to actually just lend into these vehicles. I I've kind of found my view is owning stuff is a bit overrated, if I'm honest. <laughs> but sort of it's kind of time consuming that actually sometimes it's better just to put money in and money out and, and move on and kind of get on with your life. So um I've kind of tried to declutter my life a lot for an perspective. You know, down here I rent, it's blissful. Like it's really nice. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no sort of aggravation or 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 whatever. So yeah, we are. And I think that's something we look at. I mean, I'm always coming up with sort of things that I, like I'd like to do that, I'd like to do that. But generally what I try and do is base it around 10 or Ennis, right? So, you know, this kind of multi-family office idea I've had for years, and Ida and I have spoken about it for years. And yes, we probably could have done it ourselves on the side and called it whatever, Q and I, a multi-family office. But actually, we're always trying to almost create in new businesses within Ennis, you know, the kind of the stocks and shares lending, the corporate finance, you know, the multi-family. They could have all been standalone businesses if we'd run, really wanted them to be. Um, but I think it's, yeah, we've tried to pull everything back. So Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, and to be honest with you, it resonates with me as well, because I think you, if you're going to invest in businesses, there needs to be some degree of alignment. There seems to be, there needs to be something, there needs to be some degree of com- uh, complementary nature to it. And actually one of of late, one of the challenges I've experienced is since I've had to get involved in um, two, bus- two family businesses since my father's passing that are completely unrelated to the stuff that um, that we've been doing, uh, you know, within, within Abemore, Chartfield and, and our, our own family office, um, is it's that spread of time and stuff, you know, being involved in businesses that have that aren't complementary, that aren't aligned and not being and actually not being able to add value as well through through capital or or time even or connections Correct, um, yeah. so so I, I i can actually i can actually see that um just thinking just looking now sort of uh, as we sort of start to wind down uh, just talking about lifestyle stuff so obviously you, you're living a, a great lifestyle down in down in monaco although of course you're you're on a plane a lot and you, you'll be uh, going in and and seeing people in the various offices that you've got um around the world um what are the what are the key things about your lifestyle that uh, you know that have been a, a absolutely central to you being able to sort of operate at, at your top level 
Um, um, obviously, I, I know you're a very fit individual, but like, what, what what does that look like? What does the diet look like? You know, you know, for 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 some of our listeners who I think interest enjoy that kind of stuff, can you just talk us through that in a bit more detail? Yeah, I mean, without sounding too kind of Instagram, getting up at four a.m. kind of stuff, I I I I exercise every day. I generally drop my daughter to school um, and then go to a gym. So I have a sort of uh, I would do gym, like weights you know, or I'll sort of have a sort of sweat session, which is kind of, you know, rowing, skipping, you know, always stair master that stuff, or I go outside and run or cycle. So I try to do at least an hour every day. I have this kind of idea, you've got 24 hours a day, I can spend like one or one and a half exercising. Um, and then one of my great pleasures in life is the gym I use at has just the most amazing spa facilities. So I do sauna and an ice bath, for, you know, for sort of half an hour, 45 minutes each day, which means my recovery is is really spot on uh, I stopped drinking uh probably nine and a bit years ago um which you know has been fairly transformational in my life um yeah I'm not a kind of um evangelical drinking is bad you know a lot of fun was had with it but you know kind of the party came to an end for me so to speak um and that's been a really positive step for my life and I think interestingly it's become a lot more acceptable socially and professionally um yeah some of the most successful people i know some are teetotal and if they're not teetotal you know the alcohol just doesn't really play a big part in um their life anymore so you know that's kind of been something which has been very positive for myself as well um and i eat clean i eat a lot a lot a lot you know i'm eating all day <laughs> um but i try and eat as clean as i can so um yeah it's just nature of how it is can i ask you about the the, the drinking thing the 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 drinking thing or uh, particularly say the the not drinking i think that um i think as as you'll be well aware as part of the the culture in the uk business culture you know business development culture so much of it is centered around the pub and mm. uh and around around drink in particular uh and maybe because i'm the, now the wrong side of 40 i'm now starting to really not enjoy hangovers and and, and things like that but I think that they're in, increasingly younger people don't, are, are not drinking alcohol, not consuming no. alcohol. Uh, we also have people in the space who, for cultural or religious reasons, don't drink either. Um, what, you know, what advice could you give to to people who who maybe are choosing to drink less or not drink at all um, in terms of, you know, if there may be traditionally that's the way that relationships mm. were built. How how do you in a non-drinking as a non-drinker how do you find how do you approach building relationships when that's you know when that has been traditionally the the culture in in building relationships yeah it's tricky it is tricky um certainly what i what i find a lot is i maybe will meet someone and i'll think because i have my kind of drinking british brain on yeah if we had a night out we'd get along famously and we'd probably be you know, the relationship would would be strong you know, almost immediately. So sometimes there is a bit of a longer way around to building those relationships. Uh, breakfast is is my thing. So you know, like if I wanted to to meet with someone, I'd generally say let's go for breakfast somewhere. And I, breakfast is like the cheapest meal of a day, right? Like so yeah, you, yeah. Go to the, you go to the Ritz and it's only going to cost you sixty quid, right? You know, whereas you go for dinner at the Ritz and a start is going to cost you sixty quid. So I tend to sort of make a real effort to. To do a lot of breakfast with people it's a very good opportunity to sort of talk and, and get to know 
Um, and I think also it's just, yeah, it's having that kind of courage in your convictions not to be happy not to, to say, look, I'm not drinking or, yeah, I'm not. And I, what I've found, which yeah, always entertains me no end, is I'll go for dinner with someone and they'll be like, oh, you know, wine? You know, this guy will come over to order and I'll say, no, no, no I don't drink. We'll go, what? Not at all. We'll be like, yeah, no, I don't drink. And, and so they go, no, no, we're fine. Thank you. And then afterwards, they go, oh, thank God for that. They'll be like, yeah, <laughs> it'd be like a Tuesday evening or something. It'd be like, I really didn't fancy it. And so it's funny that there's that kind of like social feel, you know, that person would have sat there and drunk a bottle of wine or two bottles of wine or whatever with me, but actually didn't want to. And I think, especially as you get older, yeah, we all have families and other commitments. So you have like a certain number of brownie points, right? But you can use up on yeah. your nights out. And it's a bit like, look, as much as I like UQ, I don't want to use up my like week's brownie point on like yeah. a bit of dinner on a Tuesday night for my, you know, the guy that arranges some debt for me. Um, so I think it's, like I said, look, for me personally, it's just been an unbelievably positive thing. Um, and you forget, like, so for anyone that's kind of thinking about it, you forget, like first three months is it is tough, like it really is. There's no getting around it. And then after that, you just forget you 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 alter your lifestyle. And a lot of a lot of crap that goes on with drinking and getting pissed and this BD stuff is you're just hanging around with the same people all the time. You're not actually business developing, right? You're just going to the pub with the same people who are always going to be at the pub and will be in 10 years' time. Yeah, the most people that are doing stuff and actually achieving and driving forwards. Yeah, we're not the guys that are getting really pissed on like a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday evening at the pub. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of take quite a lot of solace from the fact that the most successful individuals I know generally, if it forms part of their life, it it's part of their life there, right? On their, on their terms socially rather than, you know, I feel I need to please this person to do some business with them. Um, but, yeah, look, it's tricky. It, it, there's social pressures. There's peer pressure for yeah, for, for, yeah, no doubt. Well, actually, I think uh, I, I actually really like some of the sort of strategies that you got there anyway. And uh, I'm probably that person that would be generally quite relieved if you weren't, you know, yeah. it, it, you know, that Tuesday evening, not having to have a, not, have, not, not having this obligation to drink. I mean, to be fair, I, I do quite like to, I've got into the habit actually of driving into London rather than getting the train and, and yeah, obviously being good, drive, good trick, yeah. driving means that you know well you, you're probably restricted to one uh one drink anyway so um and I actually had a I had, I had a lunch with a with a relationship manager of my relationship manager at a private bank a, a few weeks ago and, and I drove in and it was at this very nice Italian restaurant on Barclay Street and um and he and and he, he was like wine and I was like no I'm, I'm driving and um I think you could also see, you know, he's he's some he's one of those people who lost a lot of weight in lockdown, and you could you could just see the relief on his face. It didn't. He was like, yes, it's a Wednesday <laughs> afternoon or Wednesday lunchtime, and, and I'm and I don't have to go back into the office, you know, pretend yeah. pretend to be competent after you know after two bottles of of Ouvre or whatever. So, yeah. uh, no, that, that's that, that that's really useful insight. Um, last couple of questions. Um, you mentioned Simon Nimmo. Uh, mm. You've also mentioned your dad a couple of times. Mm. Um, I mean, who you know? The different, not not the same person. Yes, way, I, 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 <laughs> thank you for clarifying. I, I mean, I was aware, but if our listeners were unsure, yeah. <laughs> um, they're, they're obviously been influential, men, you know, kind of mentor type people. Are, are they? Would you say that they're the most important people, kind of professional, personally and professionally, as inspirations for you, or are there or are there other people that you haven't mentioned today? That, that you would that you would want to acknowledge the uh, as being important influences in your life 
Yeah, I, I think my father certainly. Um, you know, probably in the early days when I was younger and forming my career, a lot of the advice I took from him was quite pointed and direct advice and to do this and to do that. Um, whereas now it's probably more I talk about stuff with him because um, one of the things I find as a kind of a middle-aged man if you like and certainly an entrepreneur is you don't actually have many friends like is the truth i know it sounds like a really weird statement but I, 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 yeah you accumulate a lot of acquaintances don't you I, yeah. I, I i that definitely that definitely resonates yeah um and so i think i speak to someone about that the other evening and they said their mates have actually written a book called billy no mates which is exactly that like a journey of an entrepreneur <laughs> i kind of <laughs> they kind of don't have like you know so so yeah i think a lot of the people that i sort of speak to now i classify as much as friends as much as mentors in a way yeah um yeah simon i enjoy he's been hugely successful it's not many people if any who have done it twice and he did alexander hall now charles cameron so you know, I respect hugely you know what he has to say um and you know i have a couple of um yeah, a couple of friends down here in monaco who have been very successful individuals so i really respect what they say um I'm fairly bloody minded, so I kind of would do stuff regardless if I wanted to do it. But also, I, yeah, as I become a bit wiser, yeah, will take sort of advice on board. And, and obviously, probably Isla is the person I speak to the most um, from a professional standpoint. And yeah, I think now, you yeah, know, we, yeah, we've developed, it's been like, yeah, 20 years or whatever, we've known each other plus. So I think we've both developed as individuals as well. So I think we actually have a really nice kind of, um, yeah, relationship now where we can, yeah, we kind of, we can come from different standpoints, but but we, yeah, we'll, we'll sort of be supportive of the other. We have this kind of rule that if, if there's a decision, if one of us feels really strongly about it and the other one just doesn't, has an opinion we'll do whatever the person feels really strongly does about it it makes life easier right because you're going to have differing views all the time but some so now we're just saying look i don't care so much right like if you if you generally think this go for it so um yeah there's a lot of people i speak to but um as always you know i don't know your your personality yeah from but i've whilst i i think i did a personality test once i sort of it said i was an extroverted introvert um so you know kind of even a lot of stuff i do on linkedin or the videos and stuff is not stuff that comes naturally to me and i have to put myself outside my comfort zone but i'm prepared to you know even speaking in front of people i quite enjoy it but given the choice i'd not do it but i'm kind of aware of the need and necessity to put yourself outside your comfort zone uh, actually that the that extroverted introvert is something i probably would say is not I, i'm it's probably not too far from the truth for me as well i think that you have i i did a, a, i did a, a, something called a disc test or something like that uh, with a with a performance coaching uh company um mm. that i was having a chat with and um, they said oh, why don't you try and try this disc test and they had this um american lady i think she's called dr jennifer Je jennifer rogerson and she she looked at my results and we talked through them and um it, you know so you have you basically it, it's quite it's not uncommon to have a personality that you know a different personality in the workplace to and and how you how you how you are in the workplace and then how you are at home or with with with, with people you know in a more social context and i yeah. think I, I don't i and from my own pers perspective i'm way more extroverted and way more um 
way way more outgoing in a professional setting than I am in a more social and yeah. a more social setting. I'm, you know, and maybe that's maybe that's and, and that's where you said I'm an you're an extroverted introvert. I, I, I that really resonates because it feels exactly uh, that's exactly, yeah. but very similar to, to to how I feel about these things a lot of the time. Um, last uh, last question, um, which is a sort of, bit of a closing tradition now. Um, if you were to give some advice to your younger self in 90 seconds or less, uh, what would it be and why? So I'm a great believer in just asking for stuff. So I've got a lot in my life by just approaching people and asking them. I mean, not like, can I have money? I mean, that as well, but just asking for advice. So I think people are probably too shy in terms of if that person is interested in you, to go and speak to them, right? Like most people, as we've alluded to just before, are generally quite introverted, you know, personally, but are genuinely interested in somebody up and coming. You know, if, if you come to me and say, Hugh, can we have a chat about this? Yeah, sure. Just go and ask, right? So just ask for more and more stuff as you can. Um, yeah, we touched on email, being the devil, <laughs> if you can. Um, and I think it's, you know, just be, yeah, just, just act right you know there's kind of I, I've seen there's no such thing as a wrong decision you know the, the wrong decision is, is 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 being is not making a decision so I like to think I've kind of made more right decisions than wrong decisions but you know speaking to my younger self I think is just just be bold back yourself and go for it but just seek as much advice and speak to people more successful um and just understand a bit more so yeah just just ask for stuff ask for stuff well that's uh, mm. I think um and you know the, the funny thing is that particularly asking advice in my experience uh are the either i think i like nothing more than to be asked for my for advice people yeah. people asking me for advice it it's such a it does so much for your ego doesn't it <laughs> uh, and, and um and, and that's why i think that's a great bit of advice to your younger self but also to our listeners who who are perhaps at early stages of your career which is um actually those people that you would see and you put on a pedestal, they want to be asked questions. They want to be asked uh, yeah. for advice um, because you know what? It's good for the ego and it's good for the soul and it makes you feel important. Um, Hugh, I would just want to say thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think our listeners will absolutely love uh, what you've had to say. Uh, fascinating story. We, kn we know the story obviously is very much uh only halfway through at, at the very least uh so we know that so i think without question we'll have you back on uh in you know in in a coming episode at, at some point in the future um for our listeners who'd like to reach out to you uh you know ask to ask you for advice <laughs> or get your insults ins insults yeah insults and, yeah, right, and, and, and insights uh I, I think i think we know that he won't be insulting you too much um how can someone reach out to you? How, how can someone get in touch? Yeah, just look on LinkedIn. I think it's better rather than quoting an email or, or something that people will forget. You know, just, just reach out on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on it. I'm you know, always open. So to more than happy someone drop me drop me a line. Okay, super. Well, listen, um, once again, thank you very much, Hugh, for joining us. Uh, you, you've certainly been someone that I look up to and many others around me as well. Uh, you, you definitely will provide a good degree of inspiration to our listeners. So thanks very much. And we look forward to having you on again soon. Very kind. Thank you, Michael. A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. 
They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.